It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Your emails on our mind-blowing conversation with Jeffrey Tucker. Two, a fascinating, interesting, enlightening, challenging, fun conversation with Matt Taibbi of Racket.News. Three, Bears bets on the biggest games of the weekend, including the Dallas Cowboys versus the San Francisco 49ers and Texas OU. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to the weekend. Welcome to Friday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. The Texas Rangers have advanced from the American League wildcard series over the Tampa Bay Devil Rays to now take on the number one seeded Baltimore Orioles in the American League Division Series. It's the first playoff win for the Texas Rangers since uh, 2016. It's been all too long, and it's sitting there on the mantle underneath the fire that is the 2010 and 2011 World Series. Where against the St. Louis Cardinals, the Rangers were one strike away from winning the World Series. Not once, but twice. Twice in that ill-fated Game 6 game. Just one strike away from winning the World Series. It all feels like gravy. It feels like icing. It feels like arriving to a party early and being offered the first drink. The Rangers' time is next year. It's for the next five years It's when there's a healthy Jacob deGrom, a healthy Max Scherzer. It's when Evan Carter and Josh Young are no longer rookies. It's when Wyatt Langford arrives in the majors. It's not supposed to be right now, but I've told you before, some of the best sports seasons that you ever will experience are the ones where you are significantly outperforming the bar of expectations. When it all feels like icing, when it all feels like gravy, that's when it feels the best. Next year, it will be baked in with expectations. Oh, we have to win 90 games. We have to at least get to the ALCS. Next year, it feels like the official window has opened. But this year, it feels like we've arrived at the party before not just the window, but the doors have been opened. And it's all so fun. This weekend might be the most fun weekend for any fan in Dallas-Fort Worth. We have Texas OU at 12 Eastern, 11 Central. We have the Rangers versus the Orioles at 12 Eastern, 11 Central. And then we have the Dallas Cowboys taking on the San Francisco 49ers on Sunday night football. That's not to mention the Texas A&M Aggies taking on the Alabama Crimson Tide. Buckle up, boys and girls. This right here is a fun weekend of sports in the Lone Star State. I was really excited to book the guest on our podcast today, Matt Taibbi. You know, I have always had this angel and devil sitting on my shoulder when it comes to this job, when it comes 
to broadcasting. You know, the angel on my shoulder always says to be big, to be virtuous, to do the right thing, never to punch down and really don't even to punch petty. There's no point in the personal animosities. There's no point in little fights. The devil on my shoulder is actually attached, I think, as well to a virtue, and that is to be authentic, to be real, and to be unfiltered. When I had my radio show on ESPN Radio, I often vented about people and about ideas because I wanted to be authentic with you. And I still think about this and think, what are these little insults? What are these little fights? What are these little moments worth? And the truth is, they're worth very little. It's usually about my ego or the other side's ego, and that's certainly not worthwhile. And so... In the last 24 hours, I've had this angel and this devil sitting on my shoulder. A week ago, when I kind of twisted off on someone on Twitter here on The Will Cain Show and vented about whether or not I've changed and I'm a different person than I used to be, the reasonable version of me, supposedly, that existed on ESPN radio, I felt passion. I felt authentic. A friend of mine whom I highly respect, texted me and said, hey, you know, for what it's worth, what often feels like passion can, for the listener, feel indulgent and a turnoff. This guy who's in the business of persuasion said that when he's making an argument, this is often when he loses, in his case, the jury. I really appreciate the no, and I'm always trying to be better. And as I begin to talk to you about the angel and the devil on my shoulder in this next moment, I'm not even sure whether or not I'm doing it right or quote unquote, doing the right thing. I've been a little bit busy over the past couple of months, apparently being a bad guy. I'm a bad guy in all my travels back and forth with our work in Maui. It didn't hit my radar until this week that some of the pettiest people in media not just the ghetto of sports media, but some of the smallest people in media, the Lebitard show, had decided to once again wade into the waters of maligning people who disagree with them. In that way, I'm simply a proxy. I'm simply, oh, I don't know, a stand-in for half of America. In discussing the relationship between Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman, my name came up as though it was Voldemort. They laughed in that way that they do. A totally joyless laugh about having to had speak my name into existence. Ha! I made you say Will Kane. The joke was that I should have been Max's replacement. That's what Stephen A. was looking for on first take. And in trying to recall my name, they turned to one of the smallest members of the crew and said, who was the guy? You know, the one that you said wasn't a bad guy when you actually got to know him. And they said, oh, Will Kane. And then everyone laughed. You know, the reason that I am probably wading into these very shallow and petty waters, which I know inside at some level is a big mistake, is because I also think at some point the people need to know the truth. Here's the truth about that Lebetard crew for just one moment. They are some of the most spineless and joyless people in all of media. Again, not relegated to the ghetto of sports media and all of media. They're the kind that mistake or would actually have you believe that a sneer is a smile. They always embodied the mean girls table at ESPN. And their spinelessness is best represented by the fact that once they 
rebelled against the big machine and went out on their own, they used that newfound freedom and bravery to create for themselves a cocoon of insulation from any potential disagreement should they ever encounter it in their life. Their fragile little ears sitting on top of a jello of a spine couldn't envision ever hearing someone who sees the world through a slightly different lens. They think of themselves as empathetic and diverse, and they're monolithically tyrannical about what they hear or see. They cannot encounter anyone that disagrees, lest they be Voldemort. Some of these incredibly, incredibly weak individuals I've invited into my home. You want to talk about true regret? That's regret. Inviting weasels into your home is a mistake that you have to look back upon. And even as I say that, I think, Will, stop. You are lowering yourself to the same level. Stop, man. And it's probably the right call. Stop. Don't twist off. And there's a reason. I'm not just venting. And it has something to do with the conversation in our podcast today. In the end, it has something to do with Matt Taibbi. But when it comes to this type of mindset, I do think the blinders need to be removed. I do think you need to begin to understand the audience. I think you do need to be able to understand the person on the stage. I do think you need to be able to understand the song that is being sung. These are people of words, not deeds, who think that their virtue is defined by mockery, who think that their sanctimonious attitudes are justified by never having to entertain the idea that they could possibly, with any semblance of humility, be wrong. And they walk around the world with that sneer, with that joyless laugh, and think they are the good guys. I'll just ask this, and you have the platform of social media, should this ever cross your attention, point out how I'm a bad guy. I would love to know. Not just simply somebody that disagrees with you, you know, although I think ultimately that is probably your biggest piece of evidence, that anyone who disagrees with you, and therefore 50% of America, are bad guys. I would like to know, by the way, an accusation that I have never made of those that disagree with me, that because you disagree with me, you are a bad guy. But I would like to know if you can muster anything than a divergent political opinion as marshaled evidence that I or anyone represent on the other side of a quote unquote political spectrum that does not exist anymore. You Neanderthal left and right is long gone, as you'll hear today in this conversation. But marshal any slightest bit of evidence that we are bad guys. I know. I know. And I will hear it from my wife. That was a mistake. You should not have indulged. You should not have lowered. You should not have paid attention. You should not have cared. And I know that that will be right. And I will know that also today with you, I've been authentic. Now, there's a reason as well that I bring up that pettiness. At one time when I was in sports media, Matt Taibbi, who disagreed with me, I think it's fair to say, on most issues of the moment, I think went to social media and called me an idiot. I remembered it, and I'm going to tell you why I remembered it. I remembered it not because of a fragile ego or pettiness, but I remembered it in that moment, and I only remember a few insults, because I respected Matt Taibbi. I knew he was smart. I knew he disagreed. But I knew he, I thought he, was someone who intelligently sought out 
the heart of the issue. Over time, that Neanderthal political spectrum of left and right has fallen apart. We talked about it in the last episode of our podcast with Jeffrey Tucker. It simply doesn't fit the modern reality. Over time, I don't think Matt would describe himself as changed. In some ways, I would readily admit myself as changed. But over time, I think that we both became people more interested in each other, maybe as individuals, but certainly in people with a point of view. For what it's worth, at the end of this conversation with Taibi, he reached out to me personally and apologized like an honorable man would do for whatever may have happened in the past. I told him, Matt, you don't need to, man. You don't need to apologize. It's water under the bridge. It only resonated because I respect you. And I will look forward in the future to exploring our now and perhaps our past agreements and disagreements. And here's why I guess in a way I indulged the authenticity of the Lebertard crew. I can't and should not twist off in the full way that I feel because you got to be bigger. There's so much better down the road. You know what I mean? This new relationship, which I'm happy to explore with Matt Taibbi, could easily have been written off with the authenticity of the moment for me indulging any fragility of my ego. But here we are today with an absolutely, I think, and I hope you will agree, fascinating conversation with Matt Taibbi. But first, story number one. Your emails on our conversation, our mind-blowing conversation with Jeffrey Tucker of the Brownstone Institute. This email comes in from Mark Shanback. Mark writes in, Will, chilling and enlightening interview and discussion today. First time I've shared one of your podcast episodes. Raise in three, sorry, not sorry, Mark. P.S. Show your sons that nicotine addiction is not your boss. Hashtag quit for them. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, I told you I intend to quit. Just not today. In retrospect, your advice must be caveated with the fact that it was not Rays in three. It was Rangers in two. Marjorie Brackett emails in, fascinated by this discussion and alarmed also. A regular listener and enjoy you on TV. Ronald O'Leary writes in a long message. He said, Dear Mr. Kane, my apologies in advance for the lengthy email, but I would like to comment on something in your recent podcast that involves the shortcomings of the recent conservative movement. I'm a blind person, and my political positions would put me in today's conservative camp. One thing conservatives point out is that the left's war on cars is evidenced by the left's favoring urban planning and public transportation. I'm sure the left is waging such a war to take away our autonomy and subject us to greater government surveillance. I'm a civil libertarian, so I do not minimize the hazards of a less car-dependent society. Of course, Ronald is talking about some of what we discussed with Jeffrey Tucker, the goals and aims and ambitions of the World Economic Forum of Klaus Schwab. Ronald goes on, if we rely more on public transportation, the government can more easily spy on our conversations and deny us services if a social credit regime is adopted. The surveillance concerns would also exist in a walkable city. However, I hope conservatives can understand how I would benefit from a tightly packed urban landscape. I obviously cannot drive. Again, Ronald tells us that he is blind. So my transportation options are quite limited. My loved ones cannot always drive me because of their own schedules, and taxi services are incredibly expensive and unreliable. Perhaps self-driving cars will soon become affordable, but in the meantime, imagine how alluring a city is that either is more walkable or has regular transportation despite glaring political risks. I hope this is not just grievance politics, but I am certainly open to that criticism. I do not say conservatives should check their cited privilege and accept a car-free society in the name of equity. But I hope they can at least integrate concerns like mine into the conversation. 
Again, I apologize for the long email, but I wanted to send it in light of your recent podcast about the conservative movement's shortcomings. I greatly appreciate the work you do and look forward to your views as the election and impeachment inquiry heat up. Fascinating. Appreciate the perspective, Ronald. It's always interesting to hear how the world impacts people of different ability who literally see the world through a different, not just lens, but means. What I would say, Ronald, is I had this conversation at lunch today with a friend. We were talking about capitalism and its production of wealth. We were talking about the stagnation of GDP in Japan, which was on a rate to exceed the United States in the 1990s. It's now been halved. Japan's per capita GDP is half of an American. We were talking about, and I was asking him, of course, this is because of the monetization of their debt, money printing. And I was asking if any of their health outcomes had been impacted by having their GDP. And my friend said, no, they haven't. And I said, there is an interesting question about whether or not just increasing wealth and consumption, which is what is measured by GDP, is the path to a better life, is the path to happiness. And of course, once you start indulging that question, what you have to realize is you're now in a philosophical debate, right? You're talking about how to maximize outcomes. And this takes us to our conversation with Jeffrey Tucker. I think the devil in the details on this is whether or not you believe your life's optimization should be society's life optimization. I don't think it's the best life to get rich, fat, and die of gout. I don't think it's to die like Scrooge McDuck on a pile of money. I think it's to be in touch with God and be a part of your community to help as many others around you that is possible. And yes, perhaps along the way, increase your standard of living, afford a few luxuries, create a better life for your children, and set them up with opportunities. Not all of that is measured in GDP, but those are individual decisions that I believe that I should be free to make. And if your vision of a better life doesn't include some of the description that I just gave, then you should be free to choose that vision of a better life. So for you, Ronald, and the fact that you're blind, some of these cities may very well be the best individual choice for you to pursue a better life. But it shouldn't then in turn, the Klaus Schwab's of the world, and I don't think you are arguing for that, Ronald, but it shouldn't then in turn empower the Klaus Schwab's of the world to impose that better life on all of society. This comes from Andrew Wood. Hey, Will, my name is Andrew, and I'm a 36-year-old from the New York City metro area. Just wanted to drop you a note and let you know I'm a diehard listener to your Will Kane podcast for over a year now. I appreciate you are happy to receive and read emails from fans, and I'm confident that a lot of emails put a smile on your face. I was introduced to you watching Fox and Friends Weekend after I took a sabbatical from any and all news during COVID. My reintroduction to watching news led me to watch your guys' weekend show, and I love the production and insightful stories, along with some fun, and has really helped me solidify my views and beliefs. Most importantly, staying informed on just how wrong the direction is that our country is going. This drew me to give your podcast a try, and I've made it a point to listen to every new episode the morning it's released as I commute to work. By the way... Thanks a lot, Andrew. Seriously, sincerely. I appreciate you, Andrew. Sometimes when I hear things on the news, I wonder if I'm alone and what my response or reaction might be, but you've changed that for me, and I've found myself using your arguments and rebuttals and discussions I occasionally have with my peers. The main reason I'm reaching out to you is because I've found your point of view on things to be almost identical to mine. Our inner monologues, thoughts on a variety of political and social topics, even our sense of humor, I find to be eerily similar to this point, and sometimes I can even finish your thought before you eventually vocalize it. Chase, I'll try to be more unpredictable. Andrew goes on, 
almost thought of you as my long-lost older brother at certain points. However, what really sealed the deal for me today was your pontification on Zen. This is my guy. I was laughing uncontrollably on a ride down to work this morning hearing your take on how it got you in a vice and you'll eventually quit, but not right now. We're really cut from the same cloth. I've been a Zen user for a couple years now, finding myself making excuses to pop some pouches in, although I know it's probably not great for the long-term health for me to continue. I will quit soon, but just not right now. Anyway, I won't blather on any longer. Just know you have a listener out there who is probably on the exact same wavelength as you for your wide range of topics, but I can't get behind your Dallas Cowboys. So at least we differ there. Keep doing what you're doing and look forward to hearing you on Wednesday morning. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. What I truly appreciate about this listenership and this audience is one last note. Uh, Some of our Jeffrey Tucker interview went up on social media, introduced me to a wider audience, people that don't listen to this show, nor perhaps even know me. Many of them thought in the clip where I was sort of questioning Jeffrey Tucker about the goals and intentions of the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, that I was somehow skeptical of the conclusions of Jeffrey Tucker, which he knew was not true. I, of course, share many of the assumptions and conclusions about the dystopic views of the World Economic Forum. But I asked him to steal man the Great Reset. So some pointed out we've never heard that term. And in case you haven't, here's what steel man means. A straw man is a rhetorical and logical trick, right? You set up a weak enemy and you go about knocking it down. It's easy. It's a false argument because you caricature or weaken your opponent's argument and then set yourself up for some Don Quixote style win. That's not a good analogy. A better analogy is some you know, WWE scripted style win. I intend to be stronger, more curious, a better critical thinker. And so what I asked Jeffrey Tucker to do instead of straw man it, meaning give me the weakest version of their argument, is to steel man it. Give me the best possible argument in support of the Great Reset. Any critical thinker can be able to do that. Be charitable. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And then, and then, still defeat the idea. I think that makes you stronger, more interesting, and a better critical thinker. That's the idea of the steel man. I appreciate your emails. Keep them coming in. I do read them, and perhaps I'll read them right here on the show. It is Podcast at fox.com. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two. Matt Taibbi is the publisher of Racket.com. News. He is an absolutely independent, critical thinking, investigative journalist, and he is animated by preserving civil civil liberties and specifically fighting for free speech. I was happy, excited to reunite with Matt Taibbi and explore our disagreements and our agreements. Here is Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi. I really honestly can't believe that I'm sitting here with you. Oh, and I don't wow. know, <laughs> but you probably cannot either that yeah, you end up no, one day sitting here talking to Will Kane. <laughs> of course. It's true. I probably watched your show like much more often than you've ever read me, I would say. I'm a oh, huge sports on. fan, among, among other things. So, Wait a minute. So would that mean you're talking about First Take, the Will Kane show on ESPN Radio, or Fox and Friends? 
first take mostly, uh, but I've, you know, definitely a little bit of your uh, of the radio as, as well. And last week we had you on Fox and Friends, which is another super weird worlds collide. It but is. Yeah. I um. That's part of what I want to talk to you about today, because I think mm-hmm. I find your thought process and I find who you are and sort of the changes that not only you have experienced, but but me as well, endlessly fascinating. Um, and it's not true because I do read your Substack a ton. And unfortunately, I read you before as well at Rolling Stone and on Twitter. So those will be some of the fun things to revisit. But um yeah, man, I, I'm I'm actually a big fan, um, and and I say only say actually because I don't know that I would have always said that that to be the case. But there's something that's happened to all of us. I don't know, not just you, as I said, me as well, and probably many people listening. There's something that's happened to us in the past three to five years, and you've become, I think, a real good emblem of what's happened. And what do you th- what do you think it is, Matt? Like mostly, what you write about is censorship and free speech. Is that sort of the the main or even the exclusive prism through which you see the changes in the world no i mean i think there have been dramatic changes i first noticed them just in the media business frankly um you know this for me a lot of the changes uh, that i first noticed were around the coverage of the russia story and just the way that uh veteran reporters who i had known you know for a long time were taking a different approach to covering that than they had uh, for instance, during uh, the Iraq period, where there was so much condemnation of reporters who uh, swallowed anonymous sources, um, you know, who hadn't been able to prove their stories, uh, you know, there was so much recrimination for, for people like Judy Miller. And suddenly that was completely different in 2016. And it was kind of a mystery for a bunch of us. We didn't really understand what was going on. I think there was a kind of a political sea change in the business. Uh, after Donald Trump got elected, and some of us went along with it, and others were disillusioned and had to kind of drop out. And I'm I'm one of the ones who had to drop out. How would you describe yourself today, by the way? I, I wouldn't even know. Hey, is 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 Matt Taibbi on the left? Is Matt Taibbi now on the right? What like? I don't even know if we're just talking about your political prism, but just like, how would you describe your worldview? I think it's relatively the same as it's always been. I, I first of all, I'm not terribly political. I'm, you know, as a reporter, I'm always much more interested in how things work um, and you know whether something's a good story or not. Uh, I've never been much of an activist type um, writer. Well, maybe maybe on occasion, but not that much. Uh, but I, I was always very uh, strongly supportive of civil liberties. Uh, that was one of the big reasons I was. Um, you know, very much against a lot of what was going on during the war and terror period. I was very, made very nervous by uh, a lot of the changes beginning with the Patriot Act. And I don't think my opinions on that have changed. It's just that the way people think about those issues has changed pretty dramatically. Obviously, my audience has changed uh, a good deal. Um, I have more sympathy now for Republicans than I probably did before and understand what they're thinking is um, in ways that I didn't before. And I, I, I got to own that for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, I think the traditional dichotomy or spectrum of left and right on this sort of flatline prism doesn't work anymore. And actually, I don't know that it ever worked, but I certainly at one point in my life saw things much flatter. I saw this polar spectrum and 
uh, you know, I'm I in retrospect, man, I think I, I, I need to grow and learn from where I was wrong. And I think back to one of the first times that I met you, which I, I really think that's the only time that we met outside of being on Fox and Friends recently in any interaction on social media was we were on CNN discussing Occupy Wall Street. And you you were pretty active at that time in, in reporting, of course, on Goldman Sachs and Occupy Wall Street. And I remember, you know, I probably was too doctrinaire. I've had conversations about this recently. I was probably too doctrinaire, libertarian or conservative in believing in the not not perfection of capitalism, but the the idea that it produces the best possible outcomes in a society. And you were there reporting on on, you know, people who had, I think, in retrospect, very legitimate complaints about what wasn't capitalism, but corporatism. And well, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. and that's where we are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's manifested. You know, what we're 13 years later, and even through the prism of censorship, we're not really talking about necessarily just state action. We're talking about corporate marriage to state in a kind of weird techno corporatism. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to that o- Occupy episode, one of the things I, I that's commonly a source of frustration for me is the when I first started doing that reporting, all of my sources were Wall Street people. They were all. Arch capitalist hedge fund, you know, people, they were very wealthy, most of them. And what they were mad about wasn't that things were too capitalist. They were mad about the perversion of capitalism. They were mad that some actors were getting bailed out when they shouldn't uh, and that people who were breaking the law were getting away with it, uh, where the smaller and mid-range players were were getting hit harder so um you know that was really more of a capitalist critique uh that i was doing but you know because yeah. people uh you know the class issue i think is what people latched onto with that but you're you're right i mean i think the, the traditional left to right distinctions um you know aren't really coherent right now and we're on the censorship issue uh i don't there are very few people who have a principled view of this left in public life now i mean certainly not in the you know in the mainstream press uh they were once against it now they're for it um and i think it just entirely has to do with who they're looking at do you think that is baked into an ideology matt or do you think that is a marriage of convenience so that so that what you're saying is many of the people may be listening to you right now or they're fans of you today um think they're on the side of free speech but what they really are is on the side of the being censored and if they had the levers of power they'd be exercising those same muscles in other words the left has control of most of the government institutions behind the scenes most of the political uh frontline offices as well and and the corporate boardroom but if that were if that shoe were on the other foot you'd still be making the same critique and you'd have a different audience yeah, I think so. Um, I, I would hope it's not true that the people who are upset about this now are only upset about it because it's people like them who are being censored or people with whom they agree who are being censored. Uh, I've certainly met people who are principled opponents of, um, you know, restrictions on free speech or principled advocates of the First Amendment. Uh, I was very impressed, for instance, by Jim Jordan um, on the, you know, the, the committee for weaponization of the government. Um, you know, he's someone who knows a lot of members who I was friendly with on the Democratic side back in the day. And, you know, once upon a time, things like the First Amendment were sacrosanct across party lines. Uh, even it would have been very unusual to have somebody openly come out and say, we need to censor you know 15 years ago so i i I think that 
some of these people who are coming out now and presenting themselves as speech champions, I think I think they're for real. I hope they are. I hope so, too, because I mean, yeah, I, I hope I hope so, too. I hope it's not just a victim mindset. And I mean, human nature kind of suggests to me that that you always want to silence your opponent. It's a hard thing to say. I hate what you have to say, but I'll defend to my death your right to say it. I think it's that's like a really it's easy in theory and hard in practice because everyone essentially wants to yell shut up. It's true, but I've always been impressed by the American attitude toward this. I, I think you know, having lived in countries where the appreciation for sp- free speech is not baked into the history. I mean, I lived in Russia for uh, you know almost a dozen years, and they had true free speech for only a very little time and even then it was fraught with all kinds of problems uh but americans don't generally stand or at least they didn't they don't tolerate being told that they have to be quiet about something and i've always thought that that was true across the board whether it was you were talking about republicans or uh you know people on the left um you know when i was growing up the the litmus test for somebody who was a liberal was the free speech issue, whether it was, you know, the Nazis marching in Skokie or, you know, the Jerry Falwell case uh, or Tipper Gore and the PMRC or, you know, NWA or or Maplethorpe, whatever it was. These were all the issues that turned people on. Now they're much more serious and all those people are quiet. I don't really understand it. I don't, I think it's kind of one of those things that you take for granted um, if you are from it and live it. What you just said, like how unique America's relationship is with free speech on the world stage. I don't think anyone who hasn't done what you've done, and I haven't done it, which is live someplace else for an extended period of time, can really appreciate how unique this is. I mean, um, even those other Western democracies that we seem to think we have kinship with don't have any near the same relationship with free speech. I mean, the easiest of that is Canada right now, where I believe in the last 24 hours, Justin Trudeau is is, is proposing new um, regulations in Canada over Internet streaming, including and this may apply to you. I think you're doing you very too. well. Well, I'm an yes, it will apply to me. Um and I don't know how well you're doing at the racket, but anyone making over $10 million a year has to register with the Canadian government, reveal who their subscribers are, um, and basically subject yourself to thumbs up, thumbs down from Canada's censors. Yeah, and, and th- there is some very strange language in there about whether whether or not the broadcast promotes... Um, I, for, I forget exactly what it was. It, it was it was Canada's objectives and um, you know diversity or uh, uh, I, for, I forget what the language was. But but there was some there was some very vague catch all uh, phrase in there that was sort of laden with implication that they can just take that wherever they want to go. But you're right. I mean, other countries, particularly in Europe. There's a long tradition since World War II of hate speech laws uh, and accepting the idea that the government has some say, um, not just some, but a lot of say over what you can and cannot express in public. Uh, I was very surprised by this. In my experience, when I lived in, in the former Soviet Union, there was a moment where they decided to uh, try to outlaw the former symbols of uh of communism so that would have been included the hammer and sickle emblems and that sort of thing uh it, it just would never have occurred to an american to do that you know that they, but that's the kind of thing that's normal in other parts of the world and uh we, we are unique in that sense and that's something to be proud of 
You know, I've always been curious about that part of your story, Matt. I mean, you know, I know you said that I don't read you as much as perhaps you've watched me, but that was that was disinformation. Um, the uh, the truth is, I'm pretty familiar with your story, and I've always found that fascinating. That I think we're roughly the same age. You moved to Russia right at the fall of the Soviet Union. You moved in the 90s when it was described by most, and I've read some of the stuff you've written about it as the wild, wild west. Well, first of all, I'm kind of. I mean, I'm not kind of, I am envious of that sort of adventurous spirit and experience. But why? Why did you move to Russia right then? It's weird. I, I was real nerd in high school and in college. I uh, had a real love of Russian books. My favorite authors were all Russian, so I wanted to learn to speak Russian so that I could read the books in Russian, basically. So I, I went uh, to college. I was a transfer student at a university in what was then Leningrad. Uh, starting in 1989. I was there for a year, year and a half, and I loved it. I got along really well with the with Russian people. Um, I was kind of a depressed kid, and everybody in Russia is depressed, so <laughs> I felt like I got, I got along with everybody. Um, and uh, yeah, so after I learned the language, I, I came right back, and uh, it turned into a very strange and interesting place I, I also had a belief that when you're young you shouldn't spend that that period of your life in a cubicle you should be out there doing crazy things because you're never going to get the chance to do it again yeah. you won't have the physical strength to do it again and so yeah i did all kinds of odd stuff i played basketball in mongolia um <laughs> you know I, I i had some some near misses I, yeah it was, it was it was fun uh, wait sure. what do you mean near misses uh you know i got i got very sick in mongolia i almost uh almost died uh getting home um so i had to have an emergency operation uh i had had a couple of brushes with the law in in, in russia um <laughs> there there were some there were some things where i, I could have gotten in real trouble and didn't I did a story actually in partnership with some Russian muckraking reporters where we uh, worked with a um, somebody who had formerly been in the KGB and we wiretapped uh, Putin's chief of staff and actually published the um, transcripts of that. And that, that could have landed us in very serious trouble. They decided to let us get away with it. So there, there were there were all kinds of scrapes that uh, we, we got in. So wait, I think you're from the Northeast. So you describe yourself well, as this mm-hmm. this this depressed nerd that turns into this adventure seeker who is playing basketball in Mongolia. But if I'm from a small town in Texas, if I had somebody in my high school class who was super fascinated with Russia at that time, and again, I think we're roughly the same age, you know, at that time it would have been, okay, Lee Harvey, like what, <laughs> what, what, what was the, how do you explain, was it coming out of politics? Was it because no. I don't even know if you were on the left, but why, why a fascination with Russia? No, no, the, 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 this was had entirely to do with, I was obsessed with, um, comic writers, uh, and there are some very, very funny, uh, slapstick satirist, uh, writers, in Russia, one of the first stories I read as a teenager was this thing uh, called How a Mujik Fed Two Officials. Um, it's just a hilarious short story. Then then I got into this writer, Nikolai Gogol, who was a um, – he was sort of a comic fantasist. He, like, for instance, he wrote a story about a guy who wakes up and his nose is missing and he has to go chasing it around St. Petersburg. There's a very, very strong tradition of this in, in Russian literature uh, they really, really value humor in writing. Um, 
even if you probably heard of books like Master and Margarita, they're very, very funny. Uh, so that that's what I was into. I read books to cheer myself up uh, that were funny, and I wanted that's what I wanted to be when I grew up was a was a comic novelist, and it just didn't turn out that way. But uh, but I certainly was trying to read those books. Let's take Russia for a moment, your experience there, and apply it to um, to sort of contemporary politics. So one, one of the books that I've read, it's been a, a year or two now, a couple years, um, about Russia is, is uh, Bill Browder's Red Notice. And um, Bill, like you, spent a lot of time in Russia in finance, I believe, running a fund in Russia. And he writes about his experiences there with Vladimir Putin. And I already can kind of see your facial expressions. But, um, you know, you both have... And in that way, maybe a somewhat similar experience. And the the thing about you, Matt, is I don't even know. I don't know that I could say where you are on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Actually, I think you've condemned it. But your critique has been of the media propaganda atmosphere around that war, which I think is just objectively true. Like people can see that the American public's been manipulated on this war. Um, But, you, you know, you and Browder from a similar experience seem to have come to a different place in how you view the threat of Russia, either existentially to the United States or just to the Western world. Browder's all in, right? I mean, he, whatever it takes, you must, I think he's all in. You have to defeat Putin. He's this threat. Where I'm not suggesting you're sanguine about it, but you're certainly somebody who's been on the side of, well, at least let's address this truthfully, not manipulatively. Yeah, and, and these are complicated questions. Um, I don't want to criticize Bill specifically about this we all know each other i mean the the expat community over there was not that big um but uh when putin came to power my newspaper i had a newspaper um in moscow and we were very critical of him from the start i actually had friends who knew him uh uh, who had reported on putin all the way back to his days as deputy mayor of uh saint petersburg he was he was a known figure in the journalism community over there feared. Uh, Everybody knew exactly what he was all about. He was brought into office specifically to help Boris Yeltsin escape prosecution um, for things that he was under investigation for at the time. Uh, Initially, he was welcomed by the Western press because they thought he was going to be like a sober version of Yeltsin with whom uh, the West could do business. And he presented himself that way and then quickly kind of turned on the Western community booted them all out of the Kremlin, and that's when the negative uh, media vibe started. Uh, My view of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a lot of the issues involving, you know, Russia's sort of territorial um, ambitions, I have zero sympathy for, for Putin. I think a lot of his ambitions are rooted in nostalgia for what they call the Dojava in Russia, like this this gigantic, great map that the, they used to have on everybody's wall in this, of the Soviet Union, this huge piece of territory. They want it back. I mean, there's, there's real longing for that. If you can imagine what America would look like if you lost Texas, Alaska, and New England, and, you know, one day, you know, you were dreaming to have that all back. That's what a lot of Russians feel. I think Putin thinks that way. Um, there, you know, there are Russian communities in a lot of those uh, countries, most of all in Ukraine. So I, I don't necessarily have sympathy for his, those territorial ambitions. However, I'm also very critical of the American policy, which um, was very aggressive towards Russia from the from the very beginning 
uh, despite making promises that we wouldn't expand NATO in their direction, we made sure to do it as quickly as we could, as fast as we could, which to them is very threatening and I think just sort of made this kind of confrontation inevitable. I don't think we had to do that. We could have had a universe where Russia was a, at least a strategic partner of the United States and that could have worked as opposed to making them, you know, again into this uh, military uh, um, sort of arch enemy. So it's subtle, but I, I, I think there might have been a different way to do it. Yeah, and now we and now what I see you write about the most when it comes to this war is just the 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 blatant. You know, it's interesting. On one level, we have to deal with censorship. On the second level, we have to deal with propaganda because it's not simply the silencing of voices, but it's the feeding of the constant feeding of untruths. Whether or not that's COVID or the Russia hoax, Russia collusion, anything involved, basically anything and almost everything involving Donald Trump and um, and now this story, the war in Ukraine. Yeah, and that's very, very troubling. Um, you know, I don't know how you feel about it. I always thought it was really healthy when media titles criticized one another, and that's what kept us honest and, and prevented us from uh, all getting behind some huge lie. You know, of course, we had episodes where that would happen, like the WMD episode, but um, there, there were always some detractors uh, who would you know, point out that there were mistakes being made and that's very healthy for the business. The situation we have now is really bad in a couple of ways. One, it's completely uh, siloed. So basically the right talks to the right and, you know, the the center left or the left talks to the left. So nobody is hearing the criticism of their own side. Um, but also the, with uh, among the media titles, they're not criticizing one another. So like the New York Times doesn't go after the Washington Post when they make mistakes. And it becomes like this wall. It's like the blue wall in the police, right? They, like they won't they won't think on each other when they make mistakes. And I think that's that's become really bad. And that's why we've had all these episodes where, you know, the, these blatant fictions get repeated for months and months and months without interruption. I don't even know that though there is an appetite for. In fact, I, I I would actively argue there there is no appetite for that critique, much less debate. You, you know, I think one of the things that I've always loved, what kind of brought me into this world, is I've loved the the clash of ideas. Um, I was excited to have you in the program, um, even considering you know any small skirmishes that have have cropped up on social media. Because I love the clash of ideas, man. Like I loved first take, even if we're stupidly debating Jay Cutler, I love it. I, I think there's something fun. And endorphin releasing about it. And Max Kellerman, who Max and I are friendly, but we were definitely adversarial on that show. Not by the way, that show is not an act, at least in my experience. Nobody's playing a role. You just you're just heightening and honing places of disagreement. Max used to say when it comes to debate. Oh, did you let me disavow you of any notions? I'll tell you exactly how it works. 7 a.m. meeting Mm -hmm. topics on a board. If there's agreement, move on. That one's not making the show. If there's disagreement, <laughs> if there's disagreement, it makes the show. Um, but you know, Max said that's about great. debate. Max said about debate: either I win or or I get smarter. And I think that's a really smart thing about mm-hmm. about debate. But I, I mean, I think culturally, debate is almost frowned upon now. Like certain ideas should not see the light of day. They shouldn't. They're not honor. They're not worthy of being heard. I mean, that's kind of what you saw. You saw the Coleman Hughes thing with the TED talks. Did you see that, Matt? Um, no, I didn't see that. What, what happened with him? Oh, Col- Coleman Hughes, you know, writer, thinker. I know, yeah, I know Coleman. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know wh- what his politics are. Uh, I think he may be libertarian. I'm not sure. But um, 
Coleman, African-American, by the way, um, mm-hmm. I said that for the audience. Um, Coleman gave a talk on race colorblindness, advocating for the idea that we should be we should strive. Not no, I don't, it's stupid to ever pretend that we can be colorblind, but strive for colorblindness personally and in public policy. And it was received with such um, that it's unsafe, that it was beyond offensive, that it didn't deserve promotion. And then it was depressed on the TED Talks YouTube channel or uh, TED Talks website channel. And it was made to be accompanied by a, a debate with Jamal Bowie. And, it, you know, the, the point is no one wants debate. They don't even want to hear other ideas now. And I think think that's the mainstream media yeah and and it's a it's a business model i i think it's rooted in the business model which is uh, you know you need subscribers so you tell your audience what they want to hear um and if you do present other ideas it's only to show them being defeated or ridiculed but mostly you're it's just a uh, you know preaching to the choir uh, i mean you, you know 100 percent of the time when you turn on almost any television channel what someone's opinion on a subject is going to be which is uh, i mean i think it's boring uh, first of all intellectually it's just not interesting um but it's also very detrimental i agree with you i mean i just the the, the lack of any interest in debate has just stultified our culture it's just made it um you know, it's like frozen us in time. I, I I think it's terrible. You've written about that, by the way, the business model of mainstream media. But it's bigger than media, I guess, as well. I mean, college campuses, every, everywhere you go, it's like debate and contradictory ideas are not all, I guess. Mostly the ones that I seem to gravitate towards are, are frowned upon. It's not no, no place in American society. And this is one of the things that we noticed when we first started looking at the Twitter files, too, was like we would see the discussions between the people who work in this uh, this quote unquote anti disinformation space. And, and they would use language that you would see like epidemiologists use um, when they were describing ideas. So they would be talk about contagion or infection, uh, right, or vectors, uh, you know, whenever they use words to talk about disinformation. And so it, it tells you that these people view ideas as things that are destructive um, and, you know, deadly like viruses and that they they're trying to, you know, do the same kind of intervention. They even use those words. It's the same. It's the same words that, that you would hear um, the CDC use if they were talking about how to stop an outbreak of a certain kind of disease. That tells you how people think of ideas now. Yeah. But and then that that leads to the obvious question. Destructive to what? What are these ideas threatening? I mean, I, I, I think the obvious answer is it's threatening to anybody who has power. There's a demystifying aspect of a free press. I mean, I think that's the thing that's most valuable um, about the American system and always has been, which is it's pretty hard to you know be corrupt for too long in a country where everybody gets to say what they want. You You will eventually get outbreaks and protests and pushback and all kinds of things that I think are healthy in society. Sometimes it's messy. Um, and sometimes, you, you know, the, the people who you wouldn't want to see uh, in power end up in power. But that's better than the alternative of, you know, guaranteed silence and guaranteed repression. I, that's where we're headed, you know, is a sort of stage manager version of democracy. And that's terrifying to me. 
I don't know, but what, 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 when do you think um, um, it's absolutely terrifying? I think it's what brings you and I together and possibly a lot more, by the way. Now, I think we have mm-hmm. my suspicion is that you and I have more um, Venn diagram overlaps of agreement than we ever would have anticipated in our past. Hey, when do you think that started that, like this transition into this is threatening to the pervasive ideology or the power structure. I mean, the easy answer, I think, is 2016, right? Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. And then, therefore, anything you do, any lie you tell, any anything you do behind the scenes, you were recently writing on, on your Substack about the Clinton campaign and uh, not just the the hoax of, of Russia collusion, but Russian interference. It's, it's easy to say it probably started in 16 because... Um, the excuse that Donald Trump's a th- threat to democracy. We have a greater moral truth we have to fight for than the truth. But when do you think it started to change in the media? I'm writing a book now on, on some of these topics, and in the research of that, I'm learning a lot about the origins of some of these programs. And one of the things that's really interesting is that after 9-11, there were a lot of devotees within the national security world of um, of a so-called Weimar thinker. He was really a Nazi, but a guy named Carl Schmidt. Uh, he's a famous political theorist. And one of his chief ideas is that all politics is just a matter of sorting out friends and foes. Uh, that, you know, if you if you strip away all, all of the verbiage, really, what, what, when it comes down to it, governing is just about deciding who's on your side and who's on the wrong side. And during the war on terror, we employed the, those methods basically to try to track down people in the Middle East who might have been, you know, uh, sympathetic to ISIS or or Al-Qaeda. But we gave the government and the national security apparatus unbelievable tools to monitor, uh, surveil, and see where people are, what they were thinking, predict. And then I think you're right. I think it's 2016 is the moment where this apparatus is turned inward. And instead of looking out in search of terrorists, we're now looking inward in search of what they call domestic violent extremists or HVEs, human violent extremists. And they're using exactly the same methodology of separating friends and foes. And they think friend is anti-Trump and foe is basically the other side. And that's my understanding of it right now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's complex and, and scary, I think. So let's go back and and share with each other our moments where you sort of saw the the crack in the in the kaleidoscope or whatever it may be. Um, so here's when I met you, probably let's call it 2011. It was mostly a traditional political debate left and right, although Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party were these interesting sort of pressure in the balloon, little 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 places where the balloon popped out in odd ways that were unexpected. When I went to ESPN, Matt, like the first time I was really obviously aware, I think that and maybe it was before ESPN, it could have started when I was at CNN, that there's no interest in critical thought. There's no interest in actually getting to the facts for me was often through the prism of issues of race, because that's what everything happened to on on. That's that's what. That's where culture and sports collided, right? Like everything is racist and I'm the guy on first take going, well, hold on a minute. You know, is that the reason that this thing happened? Whatever it may be. Right. And by the way, I think I'm not sure 
that may be why you called me an idiot, which I joked about on Fox and Friends. Like, oh, did I? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You don't need to call. You don't need to apologize for that. You did it on Fox and Friends. I do it. For, I'm bringing it up for fun, but also because I think it's interesting. And I was th- trying to think back. What was the issue where Matt Taibbi said, "Well, Will Kane's always been an idiot," or something like that? Um, and you know what I think it was, Matt? It was the. Um, I don't remember the player. Uh, maybe running back from LSU. I know you're an NFL draft junkie like I am. Love Kevin the Falk? NFL draft. L- no, uh, more recent. So we're talking about like drafted in, let's call it 16 or 17. St- Steven Ridley? <laughs> Look at it. You're just going through LSU running backs. Hold on. Let me give you more details and you'll get it. It was a Des Bryant type story. And at the NFL draft combine, at the combine, some scout asked this running back if his mother was a prostitute. Right? Oh, and, right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't remember the player, though. I know. I remember that story. Yeah. I don't remember uh-huh. the player. I think it was a running back. And um, everybody ran with, well, it's racist. Um, I don't know. Easiest mm. explanation. And I said, hey, listen, there might be another reason. I didn't excuse it, but I said the reason that this coach might have asked a player that question was just to see what his emotional reaction might be, anticipating that you're going to see her or you're going to hear horrific stuff on the field, which they do. Right. And, and he wants to see if it provokes this guy. Like, does he lose his cool? Oh, does he lose his temper? So that's what I had said mm-hmm. at the time. But Deadspin or whoever else turns it into Will Kane apologizes for calling your mother a hooker. You know? And so, um, and that's, that's I think, where you came at me. But, but the point I'm getting at is, for me, at that time, it was always, everything has to be racist. You cannot critically think about anything based upon its individual facts. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, but I mean, I always thought that sports journalism, they had more leeway to talk about racial issues than we do in the news. Was that not true? I mean, um, there was a moment in time. I don't know. I, uh, it sounds it sounds there was like a moment I'm, in time. Well, it sounds like I'm patting myself on my back. But when I was there now, I don't think there's any there's no fly in the ointment. Right. I was the I was the fly in the ointment to just, you know, like what you know, you saw the story of what happened with Trevor Bauer. That's another example. Did you see what happened with mm-hmm. Trevor Bauer, the pitcher? No, he was, I mean I know about his case, but but what what happened? So within the last forty eight hours, he's released a video showing evidence, revealing how this girl basically um, set up an, a sting. He's got texts and videos and everything, and I don't know if what he has to offer is one hundred percent true, but she was running a scam to get money from him saying like he's got 50 million here's my plan <laughs> you know right. and uh, and but the but the what sports media does is you have to be the first one to the top of mountain virtue and you say right. this guy's this guy's horrible let's condemn him because of course we're all opposed to domestic violence as though there's some other constituency out there and then and never actually care about the truth the facts of what and the same thing applies to race let's run really quickly to this is horrific and this is racist because that's safe and virtuous never taking a moment to go but what is the actual facts of this particular case obviously that's a very dangerous thing for journalism i mean i know that because i actually wasn't at the magazine that i was temporarily not there but i came back just as the uva rape story yes, uh, yes. was ending and that was a classic case where all the checks and balances that we have set up and we still had a lot back then to prevent that kind of thing from happening uh kind of collapsed because everybody was afraid to be the one to push back on you know the story of a quote-unquote survivor you don't want to be the one to say you know is, is that true do they make that up um 
that's a difficult place to be both in the office and out in public. Uh, but if you don't do it, you know, the, the alternative is worse as we saw with that story. Uh, and I think that's a, real lesson for um you know for people in journalism that some of us didn't get until recently i now firmly believe that like you can't try people in the media for stuff like this right you gotta wait you, you gotta be behind the law on these things that's why the, the russell brand story drives me crazy um it's a unbelievably serious accusation uh but there's no case so how do you how do you talk about it if if there is at some point a trial you can talk about it but that's a bad place for journalists to be but but to get back to your point about race yeah i mean sports media sports talk shows it's incredibly obvious that race is the subtext for a lot of the you know the hottest hot takes um and sometimes it's done in a way that's really clever, and sometimes it's not. I'm sure that must have been frustrating for you. Uh, well, the thing for me, because here's the thing. I just I rarely thought it was about the the proposed victim. It was always about the speaker. So whoever mm-hmm. was speaking was, whatever they were saying was about themselves. They were trying to communicate to the audience, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. And, and more so, that's more important than I'm a critical thinker or I'm a truth seeker. It's I'm a good person. And and it's not limited to race. We just talked about those others. But again, by the way, why do you love the NFL draft? I I, I know that you, you, you love it. Or is it the NFL draft or the NBA yeah, that you yeah. love well, more? Both of them. I like the Me NFL too. draft more, but yeah. Um, but I love the I, draft. I have no. I, I, I don't know why. It's maybe it's that sort of like uh, finding diamonds in the rough thing. I. It's just. It's just a fun exercise. I used to read all those magazines. Did you ever? Did you? Everyone. Before they still had them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, no, it's a great thing. Uh, the way sports uh, talk shows are set up. You're right. There's a lot of virtue signaling that goes on, but there's also like a lot of phony confrontation and phony drama. If you remember the old Hannity and Colmes show, the whole point Mm. of that show was for Colmes to lose, right? It was like a (laughs) wrestling engagement where, where he gets pinned every time. And in some of the debates on sports, you know, on sports talk shows, the whole point is to see, you know, basically skip chewed out, you know, uh, he ends up taking the wrong side and he gets called out on it and that becomes viral fodder or whatever it is. And we all know what the setup is, uh, but it's not real thought. It's just a show, you know. But my perspective on that always, Matt, was that's harmless fun. Like that's mostly mm-hmm. even Skip on LeBron, you know, ultimately is harmless. Like there, there is no real victim in constantly hating on LeBron. I mean, he's a multi-hundred millionaire. I don't even know. He could be getting close to a billion. And his life is charmed and great. And it wasn't always. And LeBron built himself into this. And bravo to LeBron for that. But the the one that I always found more nefarious was the one where it's not, there is no kayfabe, there is nothing like that, but it's actually, hey, I want to communicate that I'm a good person. So it really, it, it even progresses beyond the Russell Brand type story. And it does coalesce around the NFL draft often where you go through Josh Allen's tweets when he was 14 years old. You go through mm-hmm. Kyler Murray's tweets because it wasn't race. It wasn't just race. Kyler Murray, it happened to him. And it always happens on the best night of your life. You know, I think Josh Hader, when he's elected to the Major League Baseball, I think it was Hader, all-star game. Um, okay, let's comb through his tweets and see anything he said he was off that was awful when he was 13. And that's what me- makes me think journalism has turned into this thing about 
Let me just always be the good guy. I am the modern day freedom bus rider. And I might have to find my issue, and I don't know where the bus is, but I'm, I'm going to be on that bus, and I'll be the good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's... Maybe that's why people hate journalists so much now, right? They they, they perceive us as uh, holier-than-thou, um, self-proclaimed, uh, you know, pious authorities where that, that wasn't our role previously, right? I mean, I think um, the job was not about showing how good you were or even or even sometimes you know the audience wouldn't necessarily even know who you were like they would see your name in the byline but they had no idea what you looked like or uh you know what your politics were the job is much more about explaining how things work or what happened or getting information but that's not what we do now we now now we're about getting pelts um and you know racking up wins and, and these and these stories that involve individual people the thing that drives me crazy about that is that you're very often not talking about a wider social issue uh it's often this very weird idiosyncratic narrow story about some person who screwed up somewhere along the line it's not something that people are going to learn from or is going to result in some big policy change. It's just the destruction of that person's life. Right. Um, you know, sometimes it's deserved, but usually not, I think. Um, you talked a moment ago about the price you pay. For example, had you been in, I don't know if you, you said you might have been back in the building at the time of the UVA story, but at least virtual building. Um, but you talk about the price you pay if you're the guy that stands up and goes, hold on a minute. Is, is that true? I mean, you've clearly paid that price now, right? Because you've done it on a whole host of stories against people that were not just former colleagues, but I can imagine friends. I mean, you've paid the price, right? Oh, yeah. I've lost a lot of friends in the last... Um last six or seven years but particularly uh in the last couple uh, well the, the, really the, the the two episodes that were really bad were the russiagate episode and then the twitter files um you know the, the russiagate story there were there was a small handful of us who were kind of i would say more left-leaning reporters like myself, Glenn Greenwald, mm-hmm. Aaron Mate, who worked at Democracy Now. Um, there are some older reporters who were quiet, but they were, you know, privately. They they were grousing about this and they lost some friends. Um, but we, we were out in public saying, hey, this thing has holes in it. Uh, there's there's an issue. And immediately there was this tremendous condemnation um, about speaking out and that was new again we didn't have that before where yeah somebody who was a reporter says yeah i'm not sure about the sourcing on that and all of a sudden everybody's piling on like how come you're not agreeing or they would call you a denier um that was such a such a strange term uh but yeah no i went through that and then again with the twitter files it was kind of the same thing I'm a little more surprised that it happened on the Twitter files. On Rushgate, everybody had divided themselves on the lines of Trump. Um, I guess Twitter files and Elon became a proxy for that in a way. But Twitter files is a is a. I'm not saying you should have been surprised. You probably at that point were pretty cynical or prepared. But I'm a little surprised myself because again, that was basically on the issue of free speech. The Twitter files. Yeah, and we also didn't know where it was going. Right. I mean. We got access to all this stuff. We didn't know where the story was going to be. Um, we just sort of dove into it, and whatever we could make a coherent story out of, we we, we just threw it out there. And uh, 
it seemed just like a public service. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of commentary that went with it. We would say, okay, this email says that, this says that, take a look. Um, and, you know, people, like, the, the immediate accusation is that we were curate, curating it to make it look worse for Democrats. Um, but that's not really what the situation was. And we also published a lot of stuff about suppression of leftist movements abroad. Nobody paid any attention to that either. Uh, so it was really strange. But you're right. I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised by it. I was a little bit surprised, though. Uh, mainly because once we got into the stuff about the FBI and the director of national intelligence and the CIA even uh, getting involved with this issue, I thought, okay, now now the cavalry is going to come and they're going to investigate this stuff. But they, they weren't interested. So uh, having been in this, look, I, I don't think anybody has reported on it more, probably therefore has more information and background knowledge on the censorship regime here in the United States than you, Michael Schellenberger and yourself. Um, so I'm, uh, I want to share with you this and I want, I want your feedback. So in an uh, episode earlier this week here on my show, I had uh, Jeffrey Tucker of the Brownstone Institute, who's kind of a, um, I don't, I don't know how he would describe himself anymore. An, uh, he was probably like a narco-libertarian style thinker. But we, he and I talked about that. I don't know anymore. I don't know how prior political descriptors apply to the modern world. Because when you and I first met, I was skeptical perhaps of the state or more skeptical of the state. And you were more skeptical of the corporate America corporations. Now we have 10 years later this this marriage between the two and, and Jeffrey talks about as kind of this techno corporatist future where the interests of the state and the interests of these corporations, be they Google or Facebook or, you know, whatever they may be, are made to dovetail so much that they just become one in the same arms of one another. And so I don't even know how a I don't know how to describe myself, but B, Matt, I also don't know how to address that. Like, I don't know what the remedy for that is in the future. So my question for you then off of that is, do you think that's right? Like that is that your concern, having been under the hood as we move forward? Like, what is a civil libertarian, somebody that truly and principally believes in free speech? What are you supposed to do with the way this thing is headed? You've got it right on the you hit the nail on the head with this. Um, you know, you ever seen the movie The French Connection? The old seventies uh, Gene Hackman. I, I don't think I ever yeah. watched it. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a scene where he's in a bar and he looks over at a table and there's a bunch of crooks there and there, there's like one person who's like a, who's running numbers and another person who's a drug dealer. Uh, but they're all like they're they're all in the different rackets, but they're sitting at the same table. And he's like, you know what? That that table is definitely wrong. Like there's something wrong when all the, those folks are together. That's what we sort of were, were looking at under the hood with. Uh, the Twitter files, I expected it to be this sort of simple thing where the FBI would reach out to Twitter and there would be some kind of instruction, even if it was veiled, about how to do this or that. And it would be a straightforward, you know, back and forth relationship. What we found instead is that there's this entire galaxy of agencies and organizations. There's some in the military that are like just basically military parts of the Pentagon. Uh, you know, there are DOD agencies, then there's Department of State, there's the FBI, there's DHS. But then radiating out from all those are hundreds of these organizations that are quasi-private, quasi-public. They're 
half funded by the government they're staffed by ex ex government people um and then along with that you have the companies themselves in the upper ranks of twitter for instance there were just tons of these people who used to work for the national security council and the cia and jsoc and the department of defense same thing at facebook so it's all the same people the money flows just go in a circle um where the government ends and the corporation begins is almost impossible to define. And what, what's the but what's the incentive for a guy like Jack Dorsey or or Mark Zuckerberg? Is the incentive well by having this incestuous relationship? I've I've created my walled garden. I, I will always have this power and wealth center. Well, I think for both of those characters, especially Jack Dorsey, who I who I believe deep down is really a civil liberties advocate or at least he started out that way um you know they had it thrust upon them that if you don't go along with this you're going to have problems right there we're going to have all kinds of regulatory issues that are going to magically pop up um you're going to be taxed differently uh we're not going to let you put your headquarters in ireland anymore you know like there's all these things that they can they can lean on we can tinker with the section 230 protections and make sure that you face all kinds of litigation and so they all fell in line and where there was initially some hostility or at least some distrust uh between say a company like twitter and the fbi or the intelligence committee in the senate you know by about 2018 2019 they were essentially partners I mean, we, we saw the communications you, you see them they don't, they don't even talk like people who work in different companies it's like it's like an intramural office email uh so i the incentive i think was just if you want to stay in business this is the way it's got to be do you see at all I mean, I say this, this is the second show in a row where I've done this, like, I don't like pessimism. And I know, I know you're a reporter. Your job is simply to tell us the facts and the truth. I have a hard time seeing how you unwind it. I mean, not just these particular institutions, but this, this sort of inertia of the future. I don't know. And I want to be, I want to be an optimist and I want, you know, I'd love to be some political ideology that solved it or an antitrust law that solved it. But I, I don't, man, I don't know how it gets fixed. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you, but um, I had moments during the reporting of this story where, you know, I, I kind of like sagged like an animal taking a bullet when I would like, <laughs> I looked at a list once of all of the subcontractors just for one agency, you know, in the Pentagon that was doing this kind of work. And that's one of dozens, you know, of government agencies. And, and it's, you know, dozens and dozens of organizations along and they're and they're all elaborately funded. There's just not gonna be an easy way to untangle all this stuff. And even if you pass a law, a lot of these organizations are secret or they have secret budgets, um, or they're already openly defying laws. <laughs> so right. you have no I mean, I have no idea what, what's actually gonna happen. I mean, there's just a big there's a big case that's going to the Supreme Court right now, Missouri versus Biden. And the Supreme Court could easily rule that all this stuff is illegal. Um, but how do they enforce it? <laughs> how do they enforce it? Yeah. What is that going to yeah. mean? Maybe nothing, you know? Uh, that's, right. That's, that's one of the oldest Supreme Court cases. Great. Now you've, you've ruled. Now, now enforce your, your ruling Supreme Court. Um, because before we go, so you wrote about this recently. Can I ask you this? Have you moderated your tone? Even when I read you, man, you seem to be, and when you're going back at your critics on Twitter, you're the dude that, like, 
I don't know. I don't think you saved a single bullet in the gun back in the day. <laughs> and now I feel like, um, and I'm, I, I actually like moderation a little bit. I, I think come, I think come not with venom, but with flowers wins people over a little more. Um, are you consciously doing that? Have you like had a change of heart and how you respond or write? Yeah, I, I got a lot of criticism when I was younger for using profanity. Um, and that's partly because I was a big fan of writers that use profanity uh, when I was growing up. Like Hunter Thompson was, you know, was one. Um, I, I'm trying to remember who else, who, who, who were some of the others, but... Um, Hitchens, Hitchens used profanity. Hitchens, yeah. But, you know, some people it works for some people and for others it doesn't and when i went back and looked i i could see that yeah it, it, it was usually not called for also i'm just older and i have kids now i don't know about you but when you become a dad you know like you, you do change and, and but i think yeah. that's part part of what being a writer is is you have to listen to your audience and you have to honestly assess um what you're doing incorrectly and, um, you know, when you go back and you look, uh, you know, you have to be have your mind open to the possibility that things that you you were pretty sure about before maybe aren't true. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. I've definitely moderated. Uh, yeah. Among other things, I think it's just more effective. You're right. I think that humility inspires trust as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so what I was going to ask you is, having been under the hood, what I would like to know really quickly is you recently wrote honestly that you feel like you were late to the game on the censorship when it came to covid so when you got under the hood and you saw this huge apparatus that we're describing like what were the subjects that were and i mean i don't even know if you could give me an exhausted list of of subjects that were targeted for censorship um, if you can't give me an exhaustive list, what are the main ones? Well, the main ones were "quote unquote" election misinformation. Um, there, anything having to do with uh, Russian interference, right? Uh, basically, anything that the Russian government had put out on their official messaging. If if you repeated that in, in a in a text or a post. Um, that was in danger of being deamplified or removed. But what we found is that COVID was really like the epicenter of a lot of the innovation in terms of how they were censoring people. And the, the really important issue, which I didn't really understand at first, was that with COVID, that was the first place where they took stuff that was factually true, um, but just inconvenient. And they deleted or suppressed those people. And they did it in kind of a sweeping systematic way um and i didn't see it at first because i didn't know enough about covid to, to realize how wrong they were uh but that's definitely what happened and unfortunately they set a template for how to censor people politically in the future by basically saying um that if you're promoting the wrong idea that is disinformation and that's what they did man um, you have an awesome column up. No, I know, I know. I don't. I hate. But you know, let it fall. Let the chips fall where they may. If the truth is depressing, then let us all be like Matt Taibbi and move 
Not to Russia. That, if I say that on this podcast and it's all going to be, then we're all agents of Putin. But yeah. let us all lean into our depression. <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or move to St. Martin. That's a good place, I think. I like, I like that. <laughs> Tahiti. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what I was saying is great column up on Fauci and that he's sort of the, um, the test case for dictatorship uh, up at your Substack as well. Hey, um, you're welcome back anytime. In fact, I hope oh. you'll come back. I love the conversation with you. And I think there's a lot more interesting things for us to explore. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. I would love to. Thanks so much, Will. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt Taibbi. Again, go to racket.news. That's his Substack, his website, where he's doing a lot of this investigative reporting that I think is critical and indispensable. You should subscribe to his Substack. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. And now, story number three. Chris Felica is the bear at Fox Sports, and he now has a podcast, Bear Bets, at the Fox Sports Podcast Network. Chris has been joining us for the last several weeks to give us his picks of the week, and we got some big ones this week. We have Texas A&M Alabama. We have the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. And, of course, we have Texas OU. Here's the bear. Go ahead, introduce yourself with just the way you wanted to start the day. Hook them. That's right, baby. Hook them. for you. I've been, wait, I've been waiting all, all week to say that since I knew I was hopping on with you. Chris Felica of Bear Bets on Fox Sports Network here on the Will Came Podcast. Man, I just literally came in the door from a run. I ran upstairs to take a quick shower before talking with you, and I'm doing that thing where you sweat even after a shower. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It's the worst. Your eyes are all sunken in. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a runner. You don't want you don't want to put your shirt on too soon, but you know you got to get out and start doing. Yeah, it's it, yes, it, it's a problem. It's a problem. Everything's wet, and I don't know if it's sweat or if it's shower water. <laughs> um, all right, man. Yes, hook them. Let's start with the weekend. Let's talk about the big game of the week. That is the Red River rivalry or the Red River shootout. The name of it changes so often I can't keep up. Political correctness is what it is. Changes the name on a yearly basis. It's still, though, as always, is Texas OU. And Hookham's looking good, but man, you always have to take seriously the Sooners, Bear. You do, and I think what I mean. You followed this this rivalry around enough to realize just the emotion of it, and a forty nine nothing win by by the Longhorns last year probably hasn't sat well in Norman for the last three hundred and sixty five days, and as a result, we saw Brent Venables and that staff really do a number in the transfer portal and shoring up some things on that defense to try and alleviate some of the problems. So far, so good. Now it's not exactly like the the uh, the schedule has been great so far. I mean, you're you're looking at teams like what Cincinnati, uh, Tulsa, SMU, Arkansas State, Iowa State last week. So it hasn't necessarily been the most high powered offenses in the country, but but at the same time, their defense has played uh, much better uh, than it has this year statistically. However, I will say this: there are people out there who, who follow this league closely and follow Oklahoma, follow Texas closely, and have called their games in the past and uh, been, played them in the past, that they look on the film and they don't necessarily see massive improvement. So I'm, I'm one, I think this week will be a uh, kind of a, a litmus test to see if what we've seen so far from OU is real on de- defense because uh, we do know Gabriel and that offense have put up some some pretty incredible numbers this year. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I, I can't wait to settle in uh, once Big Noon gets, uh, gets off the air on on a, a noon on Saturday, uh, head inside and, uh, and watch uh, this game right next to uh, Ohio State, Maryland as well, because uh, it's a great noon window. 
So, you know, as opposed to OU, I think I've read almost every respected coach and scout look at the film on Texas and say they're for real. Like, they really beat Alabama, not a fluke. And although that game's in the past, what they're talking about and why people go back to that game, Bear, is because they beat Alabama in ways that haven't been Texas for more than a decade and have been Alabama for more than a decade. And that is big on the defensive line, big on the offensive line. That being said... um, it's one of the more unpredictable rivalries that I can think of in college sports. Like, Ohio State-Michigan has kind of been dominated by Ohio State, right? And, and Alabama-Auburn has been dominated by Alabama. You don't really know. I mean, even though one team might be on paper way better or in the rankings way higher, I don't think you have a good sense of what to expect in Texas OU. So what is your prediction in this game? I think the line is Texas 6.5. Yeah, it, it seems kind of high. Like, I, I don't know if this is a game that I want to get involved in in, ter- uh, in terms of laying six and a half or taking six and a half. But I do think Texas is better. And I think what you said was exactly right. And what everybody noticed, it was not a fluke the way that they beat Alabama. Uh, they, they bullied them around. They got after the quarterback. Uh, they ran, ran the ball. They were better on bo- up front on both sides of the ball. They were better quarterback. They were better receiver. And if you're better than Alabama, that makes you a national title contender. So my my hunch says that Texas is better and Texas will win. But like you said, at the same time, we've seen instances in the past where underdogs have stepped up and and just rallied and and won this game. But I do think uh, Texas is better. I I think Brooks in that secondary uh, will give Gabriel problems. I do think Texas will win. Don't know if I want to lay six and a half, but – this very well could be meeting one of two because I think there is a high likelihood that both these teams can wind up meeting in the in the Big 12 title game with a college football playoff berth uh, at stake. All right, hook them. Right, I want to do quick other two other college football games before we move to pro football. We can do these much more quickly. Um, Georgia, Kentucky, probably the biggest test for Georgia so far this season. Kentucky, not to be overlooked. Georgia sort of feels. Um, I know they've 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 gone up against Auburn, but. It's not untested. Maybe it's unproven. They've left people with questions. What do you think with Georgia and Kentucky? And and it's amazing how they've left people with questions because you look at what they've lost from last year. And, and you, you lost an offensive lineman. You, you lost Stetson Bennett. Uh, you, you lost Jalen Carter, who didn't play about half the season last year. So you, you figure, well, what have they really lost? And, and it's like all the all the people. I mean, was, was Stetson Bennett that important to the offense? Maybe he was. And is that the reason why they seem to be struggling? You have an offensive coordinator. Is that the problem? But you're right. Georgia has been leaving you wanting more. They have been an extremely slow starting team. And ultimately, I think one of these weeks, that could catch up with them. I just don't know this week if that's the spot. Kentucky has been a team that struggled mightily to score points against Georgia in the past. But is this Georgia defense up to snuff? Are they what we've seen the best so far? We haven't seen that until the second half against Auburn when they've needed stops. Or, so what's your or pick? The second, or the second half, from, yeah, from Georgia, or the, uh, the, the second half of the South Carolina game. Like, until we see 60 minutes from Georgia, like, I, I don't know how you could be ranking them number one in the country right now because uh, they, they certainly have not played the part of, this, of number one. It's more of a reputation ranking uh, than anything else. However, that being said, I, I think this week we've seen this number uh, come down quite a bit. I, I, I think it was right around 16 or 15 and a half, and now it's come down to 14, 14 and a half. I do think 
that there might be a good opportunity to buy low on Georgia this week with Kentucky having the big win over Florida last week. So uh, I'm I'm inclined to lay the points here with Georgia. Uh, So just out of curiosity, if you don't think Georgia's number one in the country, how would you rank? What would be the Bears college football rankings right now? Top five. Well, I, th- I think the, the the most complete team from what we've seen right now is Michigan. I, I think Michigan, uh, what they've done defensively last week, they finally uh, turned it on offensively. Uh, I think that combination probably is deserving of being uh, the best team in the country. Now, has Michigan's uh, level of competition been great? No, uh, but 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 I think. What we know about Michigan is, is is more than anybody else. I probably have Texas too. Uh, I, I think if you're voting number, I think you're vote if you're voting in the poll, you have to be deciding between Texas and Michigan right now uh, for number one. And obviously, none of this matters right now. We have right. seven games left in the regular season, but but I, I do think that that it matters in the sense of you should not be factoring in all of your priors from from last year before the season now that we have some games and some data to work on it's kind of hard to make the case for georgia to be number one right now okay two programs that it's kind of interesting they're they're in a navel gazing existential moment like who are we and where is this program headed one is texas a&m and the other is alabama one may be deserved may one may be undeserved A&M fans were on the verge of going, okay, it's worth a $70 million buyout to get rid of Jimbo Fisher. Now they haven't, they haven't looked terrible since that moment, right? Um, Alabama may be prematurely freaked out after losing to Texas. I think they prematurely benched Jalen Milrow. Um, But there are those that are beginning to question the long-term future of Alabama. So these two meet, and in a game, by the way, that has been Alabama's sort of Achilles heel. A&M has had their number on a couple of occasions. So what do you see with A&M Alabama? I'll tell you what, Will. I tweeted something out yesterday about asking if like this was the most like significant game uh, in the Saban era at Alabama. And I say I use significant because it kind of alludes to like an inflection point with the program. Like if Alabama were to lose this game, you're looking at two losses before the end of October for the first time since Nick's first year in Tuscaloosa. You're looking at them losing at A&M, one of their bigger rivals in that division, uh, in a massive recruiting base in the state of Texas, coupled with a loss to the Longhorns already who are moving into the SEC next year. But we've seen LSU beat them last year. We've seen other teams play them close. Like, I'm not saying like the Alabama dynasty is going to end, but at the same time, I, I think it would represent a point in time where all of these other programs in the NIL era have reloaded and reached a point now in their recruiting level that they can play with an Alabama on a week-in, a week-out basis. And it's not just automatic that Alabama is going to go 11-1 or 12-0 every year. So that's all I was getting at. And then on the flip side, a lot of people said, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I think it's a bigger game for Jimbo Fisher at A&M than it is uh, for Alabama long-term because you're probably never going to get a better opportunity to beat Alabama with questions at quarterback, with questions on the offensive line. Like The A&M defensive front is really, really good. The offensive line is very... People kind of overreacted to, I think, that A&M loss against Miami. And what I kind of said at the time was, what if Miami just happens to be really good? And, And that was by... 
by the end of October, that loss may not look terrible. So I like A&M on Saturday. I think even without Connor Wegman, I think, I think Mac Johnson can do the job behind that running game and that defense. When we, we saw South Florida uh, have success against the Alabama running game, I know Milrow didn't play, but I, I I think if you have a lot of people watch the film of the Alabama offense, they, they say it looks nothing like what we would expect from Alabama people, football people that I trust. So uh, I, I think this is going to be a very difficult game for Alabama to go in there and win in uh, I like the Aggies on Saturday. Okay. I'm still sweating like a hooker in church here. And it's um, not because I'm about to ask you about the big professional football game of the week. I'm still cooling down. And so let's let's deal with, um, before it gets too heated here, let's deal with the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. That's the big NFL game of the week. Here's my thought, Bear. I think in one sense, everybody sort of looks at this and says the Niners have owned the Cowboys because they have put them out of the playoffs two years in a row. But what we forget is that both of those games were actually really close. And both of those games, Dallas's defense did a number, at least in the most recent game, Dallas's defense did a number on the 49ers. They stopped them from running, at least for most of the first half and the third quarter. And that's the key. I think that's the entire analysis of the game. Can Dallas stop San Francisco's run? If they can, look out Brock Purdy. Because here comes Micah Parsons and uh, Demarcus Lawrence and Dorrance Armstrong and Sam Williams. Here comes the house. Um, But on the other hand, and I'm trying to be a realist here, even though those games were close... It's sort of a theme that's consistent with the Cowboys that the other team comes up with the play that's needed when it is needed. And I don't I am a Dak lover, you know that. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not out on Dak, but it won't mean as much in the regular season. It's got it's got to happen in the playoffs, but I'm going to need to see the the Cowboys and, you know, by extension Dak come up with the play to win that tight game. Yes, the games were close, but yes, also Brock Purdy made the play that wasn't made by Dak. I think what you, you st- started with uh, the, uh, the Dallas defense against the 49ers, not only the running game, but the the, the pass, the, the short screens, the quick hitting plays that they kind of use in it as an extension of the running game will be key too. And what was the one area about San Francisco that everybody focused on before the year that might hold them back? What was their offensive line? I mean, a- outside of Trent Williams, I think there are massive questions. Who cheats? And, and, who, by the way, cheats. <laughs> Trent Williams. Can we just get it on record now? I'm going to be complaining about it on Sunday. Trent Williams is a false start almost every play. He takes off every early. Play. And and the uh, who is it on the uh, on the Eagles too? The uh, the other uh, offensive lineman on the other uh, the, the tackle on for uh, names names. Slip, slip You're right. I can't remember yeah. who it is. Takes that first step but, early. But, and and it just doesn't get called, and, and it's a massive deal. But but at the same time. I almost wonder if the slip up in Arizona a couple of weeks ago where you were down two offensive linemen and, and maybe the offense struggled in the red zone and, and maybe Dak got a little rattled because of the, of the pressure he was under. I wonder if that's a little bit of a benefit in the long term. Kind of, okay, we got our bad game out of the way. And they came out last week and looked like a completely different team, absolutely focused. They were looking to score before half. It looked like they wanted to send a message to not only Belichick and the Patriots, but the entire 
entire league. I, I think this is a good spot to to bet Dallas plus the uh, plus the four. I know it opened at three and now it's up to four, so it looks like 49ers money is coming in. But but I, I think this matchup uh, on Sunday, everybody's so high on the 49ers. Like I am as well. If I had to pick one team to win the Super Bowl, and even Jerry Jones said it earlier in, in the week, like they're the one team that you would pick. But but you just wonder at some point. Will something not click? And I think the Dallas defense presents the ingredients to really be disruptive to the 49ers if offense. They can, if they can stop the run. I mean, I will tell you, yeah. in the blowout of the Giants, the one sort of chink in the armor was Saquon was running on that first drive. And it did make me wonder, oh, are we having trouble stopping the run again? Mm-hmm. And then comes Arizona and couldn't stop the run. And here now we run into the Niners, and that's what they're really good right. at. Is oh, by the way, the guy. Oh, by the way, the guy right now might be the offensive player of the year, maybe the MVP uh, in the league. But by the way, can we stop putting the Giants on primetime? Like, how many more <laughs> weeks are we going as football fans? Are we going to be subjected to watching the New York Giants in, in, in a standalone primetime? That's game? an old Ryan Rosillo take. Ryan used to complain about that <laughs> on SVP and Rosillo. He said, "I'm so sick and tired of the Giants. <laughs> They're terrible." <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Chris Felica, there's our games of the week. It's always good to talk to you. Check him out at Bear Bets at the Fox Sports Podcast Network. Thanks, Thanks Bear. Well, have a great week. You too. There you go again. If you want to keep up on those best bets of the week from Bear, check out Bear Bets at the Fox Sports Podcast Network. That's going to do it for me today. A long, jam-packed, fun, insightful, stimulating edition, I think, of the Will Kane Podcast. If you think it's so worthy, go give it five stars. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.